Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. Our sense of belonging is vital as it provides us with a sense of identity, social support, safety, preparedness for community engagement and personal well-being. It helps build stronger communities, promotes unity and enhances the overall fabric of society. But there remain some concerns. The most recent results from the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute's Mapping Social Cohesion Surveys reveals a decline in Australia's sense of belonging, especially among the young and those who feel economically vulnerable. Yet interestingly, despite Australia's rapid demographic shifts, a strong sense of community persists within neighbourhoods. In this episode, we will explore these changes in the context of Australia's fast-growing regions. We're unpacking the implications of Australia's evolving neighbourhoods and demographic changes on our sense of belonging, both on a national and local scale. And most importantly, we'll discuss how we can ensure no communities in our rapidly expanding regions are left feeling disconnected or overlooked. To begin, let's better understand how urban development, infrastructure and community involvement contribute to a sense of belonging in Australia's changing suburbs. To help us better understand this is our guest, Bronwyn Clark, who is the CEO of the National Growth Areas Alliance. Bronwyn has spearheaded the significant advocacy wins for the Alliance at the federal level through campaigns such as Catch Up With The Outer Suburbs and National Nightmare Commute Day. She has gained widespread reach in community and political spheres. As the Chair of Volunteering Victoria, she plays a vital role in promoting active citizenship and building resilient communities. Welcome, Bronwyn. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I'm very intrigued by National Nightmare Commute Day because um, (laughs) currently in Victoria, I think there's a lot of people that would be able to relate to National (laughs) Nightmare Commute Day um, to the point where the government's actually asking people to work from home Mm -hmm. rather than bother to commute Mm -hmm. in. Um, That's right. What what was the genesis of National Commute Day, uh, Nightmare Commute Day? It was uh, trying to... um, show politicians and and decision makers the the lived experience of a long commute from the outer suburbs into work um, every day in traffic. And so we thought, how can we do this that sort of builds a a sense of community right across the country and is is something that we can all, um, we can all Uh, participate in. So we asked people from the outer suburbs when they arrived at work to post on social media how long it took them and how far they travelled. And um, sometimes, you know, people would put a selfie up saying, hey, I only actually had to come seven kilometres, but because of the the growth in my suburb and the one road out of my suburb, it took me 55 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Or others can say, you know, I left home before dark and here's, you know, I had to park 15 minutes walk away from the train station. So, um, So that was the genesis of it. And we sort of thought, what can we call it? Because, you know, it's got to have a catchy sort of relatable title. And over and over again, we just heard people say to us, 
nightmare commute. Mm-hmm. Nightmare commute. And so we created no- National, National Nightmare, nightmare Commute, commute Day, Day. And, it, and it worked a treat. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, for everything from utopia to, to major discussions on things like Q&A, all tend to, to focus around this um, uh, uh, this issue to do with infrastructure, how important it is to have mm. infrastructure that works well, but the pain when it's actually being developed is, yes. is enormous. Um, so it, it does create a whole lot of issues about my day-to-day life compared to what I hope the, the suburb will actually be able to cater for in the long mm-hmm. term. Is, is that one of the things that the, um, the National Growth Areas Alliance deals with? In a way, uh, so we're talking about those outer suburban areas that um, are right on the outskirts of the city, I suppose, greater metropolitan cities, so Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. And there is lots of brand new suburbs being built, Um, so greenfield development. And um, I think people who live sort of closer to the CBDs or middle ring suburbs would be absolutely shocked if they went for a drive and saw how far our cities extend and how far people um, live away from the CBD but still feel like they're part of, of that city. And so we've got a double whammy problem with infrastructure. The first is um, successive governments just have not built transport infrastructure as people moved into areas. Mm-hmm. So they're you know, there's suddenly an extra 5,000 cars a day using a single lane road or, you know, there's um, a, a T intersection um, where trucks are going past and kids are trying to cross an unmade road to get to school. And so so the infrastructure isn't being built as people arrive. So that's one issue. And then the other is, um, you know, we do see as you know, we speak in this period of time in Melbourne where everything is closed down for major projects to be built, um, it's all being spent in sort of inner areas. And so while they're all important projects and it will make life easier for people travelling from, you know, the outskirts of the city or crossing the city, um, all that money is being spent in established areas that are already well-served with infrastructure. So it's, you know, it's obviously hard for the federal government to find and state to find that balance. But what we say is we need something built <laughs> when people arrive. You know, otherwise it's quite often it's 10, 15 years later. Yeah, well, ideally we see, before they yeah, arrive. But ideally, I guess there is some debate yeah. as to whether or not we want to continue to grow out. And mm. so that idea of thinking, no, we're going to have to build up in the centre rather than build out is, um, is it creates a bit of a tension as to what it comes does, first yeah. and how do you actually manage those things. I think the reality is though to, to house and to accommodate our population growth, we need growth in all areas of the city. <laughs> so we do need to uh, densify and we do need to go up around, you know in this in the established areas where there's already existing, good road transport, public transport, hospitals, schools. Um, but that's not going to be enough and it's not going to happen quickly enough to accommodate the number of people who need a home. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of research, some recently just from Infrastructure Victoria, that found there's still an enormous appetite for people to buy a detached house on a little block of land. And we're not yeah. talking quarter-acre blocks anymore. No. <laughs> you know, we're talking 300-square-metre blocks, 400-square-metre blocks. Mm-hmm. But it's still something that people really want. And so obviously we just need to give everyone the choice um, of where they want to live um, and knowing that we're going to need apartment blocks and houses to meet our population growth. Well, and certainly the outer suburbs are are more affordable than inner city is. Mm. So you, you are going to get those people that are newly arrived to Australia moving out into the outer suburbs where they can actually realise the dream they had of coming to Australia and owning their home and raising their That's children right. in, a, in a, a safe and and, um, and and sort of picturesque environment, yeah, if you like. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and you know, unfortunately, um, the house might be more affordable, but the lifestyle isn't necessarily more affordable. Mm-hmm. And we did some research um you know, just before the pandemic and then a little bit during the pandemic. And we were found that a lot of outer suburban households were spending about 17% of their household income just on transport costs to get to work. So that's enormous. It is, it is. <laughs> and that's not even counting the time it's taking and time away from their family, time away from their community. And um, during the pandemic, we found not only were outer suburban people um, who were working from home, not only were they saving a lot of money, they were sleeping better, they were less stressed, you know, the other members of their household were happier. um, And and a really important finding was that um, a lot of uh, full-time carers, so looking after the kids at home, predominantly women, but not all women, found that they suddenly had sort of time and support to think about doing some study or some part-time work or taking in some work to do from home. <laughs> so it really transformed household economies as much as anything else. So when when you talk about the the sort of the um, when when we think about the work of the alliance, um, it encompasses more than just infrastructure, because as you've just described, there are all these different social elements mm. that play mm. out as a role as a result of how well we manage those those growth areas uh, going yes, out. Right. So, uh, in your view, how how do we balance the the those social dynamics? along Mm. with the more physical components? Mm. So I think there's there's a couple of elements to that. And and the first is that, you know, we work on behalf of local governments. So these are councils. We've got uh, 22, I think 23 councils, um, you know, who are home to a fifth of Australia's population. Yes. Um, So they sort of are only about 6% of of councils across Australia, but home to 20% of the population. And... Um, and what they're really after is, you know, we develop new suburbs. So developers will come in, state government will release the land and say we want to expand our city out in that direction. Developers, you know, work with local and state government and they decide on number of houses and where they'll be. But then local government sort of becomes the 
the guardian, I suppose, for those for those yeah. suburbs in perpetuity. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, each level of government, apart from council, sort of plays a role and then finishes and leaves and, and industry finishes and leaves, but councils are responsible and connected to their community forever. So um, there's a few things that, that need to happen. And one is um, if they're, they're actually really straightforward. And, and one of the things that we're really asking for from state and federal government is as you develop or as you decide to develop a new area for houses, just just a bit of extra money, and it's not a massive amount, but a bit of extra money for a community centre or a cultural centre or the library or a, you know, a basketball court mm-hmm. or, or um, a swimming pool. All of these sorts of things, which when you move into a new place, it's houses as far as you can see, and you need somewhere to gather. Oh. People need to connect. Absolutely. And um, so we supported some work in the city of Wyndham. Mm. And you're absolutely right. What you see is Mm. tracts of housing with the occasional McDonald's in between them. And that was about it. And we, one of the things that was really missing, and this is um, where I get to is around the coordination between state Mm. and and local, is is this issue to do with um, the frequency of um, trains going through. And the, and there's no local bus service that yeah. actually connects with the lo- the time of the train. So people are taking yeah. three hours simply to leave yeah. home to get mm. to, to the bus in order to get to yeah. wait at the train station until the train yeah. comes. And so we were yeah. we were trying to find ways of supporting more home-based businesses. And yes. one of those, for instance, a local community bus that might be able to fill that void. As as mm, you say, mm, there are all mm. these opportunities that open up as a result of it. So Absolutely. Do, you, do you have any thoughts about what we need to do to, to increase mm. that coordination between local and state uh, when mm. they are, you know, choosing to do these large scale developments? I, I'd love to see it uh, mandated. You know, I'd love to see that... Um, just as federal funding for hospitals, for example, flows through very, very slowly, but it does flow through based on population growth and and you know the number of people living in a in a hospital catchment area, I suppose. But that can take years and years to to flow through. So I'd I'd love to see a similar sort of model that can be delivered really quickly. So for every thousand houses, you know, there needs to be funded. Um, and, you know, councils are really happy to co-fund. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as are increasingly developers. That's right. So, But there needs to be something mandated, you know, because there are some brilliant examples where um, some of the major developers have got great relationships with councils and they have built a community centre mm-hmm. first up. Or, you know, there's you know, there's one in um, City of Casey. It's a, it's a bit of an old example now, <laughs> but they built the community centre that's like the neighbourhood house in the first row of houses mm-hmm. that were built. And it just served as a hub and a connector and, you know, it did incredible good for that community. And there's another one up in the city of Whittlesea where, you know, there's a great cafe and and park built as part of 
of the development. And we've seen some great ones in, in Mount Barker in Adelaide as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all these things that um, can be done very easily. So, you know, that's that's what we'd like to see. And um, at the federal level at the moment, the Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government, it's a big portfolio, <laughs> Minister Catherine King has just established an urban policy forum, which I'm um, lucky enough to have been appointed to, which we hope will have a look at these more holistic issues. So as we've been talking about, it's not just the freeway interchange or the train line. You know, it's as simple as a playground or a basketball court or, um, you know, a a space where people can gather. And you don't always need... Um, planned activities because people are pretty uh, <laughs> pretty resourceful. You know, they are yeah. pretty resourceful, but you know, I've, you know, through my work with Volunteering Victoria as well, I see lots of great examples of people who just get up and get, do something, get on with it, and and I think and that's they, so but they true. often just need a space to yeah. do that. Yeah. But but there's also um, I think a mentality that needs to be in place that supports uh, ongoing co-design. Uh, with communities because you're absolutely right. You need to indicate that so that social cohesion matters in your local yes. areas by yes. building that that first thing, that community centre, mm. that basketball mm. court. But you need to then have in place a process by which you keep adding on to that so that everybody does actually have a vision about the type of future and they're they're helping to create that future as well. Mm, Um, So mm. you're absolutely right. The the volunteering um, uh, mentality, that that preparedness to actually participate is – is there? It's it's there pretty much with everybody yeah, because they want to have the best possible environment for where they live. So mm. I'm interested in in knowing a little bit more about any other examples that you've got where you've mm. seen this type of community based volunteering that's actually mm. activated a, a particular local area. Yeah, look, there's there's lots of um, those really sort of micro actions, I mm-hmm. suppose, and and we've. Um, You know, we've really embraced the term community giving and community building as much as volunteering because quite often people don't see themselves as volunteers. They think they're just doing something for their community. And and, um, so there are, you know, lots of lovely little examples of, you know, some of that guerrilla gardening, for example, Mm -hmm. where, where, um, you know, an overlooked space will suddenly have some trees in it and and then people will gather and help out and it becomes a, a source of pride for that little neighbourhood group. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, then you have some other fantastic examples of, of, um, of people who have faced a challenge and then reach out to others um, so that they can sort of work together to avoid it in the future. And I met a, a fantastic young man called um, Mohammed Semra um, a few weeks back <laughs> at National Volunteer Week. And yeah. and he, um, you know, he faced some racism mm-hmm. in his everyday life. 
and decided that he had the resourcefulness and the energy and the ambition to try and stop that happening to others. So, yeah, he gathered. He gathered people together mm-hmm. um, who had experienced that and, um, you know, set up a, a training facility to be able to sort of help others to understand what they were doing and the impact they were having. And, um, you know, you see lots of great um, examples where sometimes, you know, in Penrith in Western Sydney, um, that the council put together a whole sort of resilience strategy, which was based around how do we um, build that social cohesion, bring people together. And it only took a little nudge Mm-hmm. You know, it just took a little nudge, one opportunity to be provided and community members just took it and ran with it. So whether that's pop-up coffee shops or, you know, sort of all these pop-up parks and things <laughs> like that, it's, it just needs, yeah, they you, ran You raise it. a really important point, which I think, um, you know, the past year is sort of um, really emphasised, which is to do with crisis resilience as well. Mm. So mm. floods bushfires, mm. whatever, that that importance of people wanting to protect their own uh, yeah. communities but also their ability to come together and, and talk to each other about and then coordinate to mm. be able to respond to those particular needs as a result of a, a particular crisis is, yeah. um, is just so important. And so this... Um, creating these nudges, these opportunities yes. for occasional volunteering or for mm. those that want it to be a bigger part of their lives, for people mm. to actually have a, an ability to volunteer in a substantial way mm. all contributes to that resilience within those communities. It, it really does. And, you know, another issue facing outer suburban communities is that they keep being built in areas prone to natural disasters (laughs) so whether it's bushfire or flood or storms and and so yes there's you know really important volunteer role in responding to disaster and you know activating in that emergency response space but just as important and something that I'm really passionate about is is the long-term recovery and that comes um, it builds resilience, it builds connection, but it has to come from mm-hmm. a connected community to start with. And Absolutely, um, you know, I think that's the danger, especially when you know have a lot of um, you know outer suburban areas are multicultural hubs. You know, there's one in th- one in every three households is um, people born overseas, and it's just this wonderful vibrancy and energy that multicultural communities bring, Mm -hmm. but they also bring, you know, a lack of experience in facing an Australian bushfire season, for example. So, But um, many do bring absolute experience in dealing with a crisis. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. So bringing all those experiences and skills together, um, I think that's what makes outer suburban areas something quite special. And, um, you know, they are the future of Australia. There's a million young people, million sort of teenagers and kids. And, and, and babies being future. born today. <laughs> Every day, many yes. of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I've just got one last question, though. Mm. You said you grew up in Werribee. 
Yeah. Werribee used to be a long way out. Mm. <laughs> it's not a, such a long way out anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have a view about um, if there was, given that you've seen that sort of time horizon play out around the growth mm. of these suburbs, mm. have you got a view about if there was one radical change? And I, I suspect you might go back to that comment that you made before about mandating things, mm. but nonetheless... Have you got an idea about what is one of the things that we could actually do to ensure that going forward we have suburbs that do really foster that community engagement and that Mm. ability to have a voice about what needs to be in place for communities Mm. to be developed? Mm. Well, certainly that mandating issue, mandating um, social and community infrastructure But another thing that's been on my mind is it's more of a cultural shift (laughs) and it's more about um, looking out. So looking away from the CBD to opportunity. And I think there is so much opportunity in outer suburban areas and those towns like Werribee, which when my family moved there in the early 80s into the brand new house on the, you know, the last street or paddocks and with cows in across the road. And now, you know, you can drive another 15 k's mm-hmm. and still be in housing. But um, it was called the country suburb back then. But now it's, you know, it's on its way to being a city, like a genuine city. And so I think it's a cultural shift to say, you know, Melbourne CBD or Sydney CBD, you know, they're still our sort of anchors in a way, but we can achieve those same sort of city experiences in other places. And so if we look outwards, whether it's to, you know, Blacktown in Mm -hmm. Sydney, Liverpool or... um, you know, up to sort of um, in Adelaide, around the Playford, you know, Elizabeth area. Like there are lots of areas that can become cities themselves. Yeah. They are cities. Well, just and look at Parramatta. So <laughs> Parramatta, exactly. Um, but if we could actually culturally shift our thinking to see uh, places other than the CBD as legitimate cities that need servicing and can meet all our needs, then, you know, I think um, that could be a really great step forward. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Bronwyn, for spending this time with us. It's been terrific to have a chat to you about issues that just affect absolutely everybody. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and we certainly need to talk more about how important it is to think and plan ahead. So wonderful. Um, thank you very, very much, Bronwyn. Thank you interview. so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. To give us a local practitioner perspective on belonging and community dynamics in Australian neighbourhoods, we're joined by Mohammed Ahmed. Mohammed, who is also known as Mo Social Impact, is a passionate advocate for African Australians. Mohammed is an established and experienced speaker, facilitator, and trainer working as a youth and community practitioner for almost a decade across both government and not-for-profit sectors. He currently works with the Victorian Department of Education. Mohammed is also, though, the co-founder and director of the Better Men Project, a mental health service which delivers evidence-based programs, workshops, professional development and seminars to better the mental health and skills of young men and those that support them. Welcome, Mohammed. 
Thank you for having me, Anthea. And you, that's a mouthful there. So. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely <laughs> terrific, and you and uh, you are a really important component in this discussion about neighbourhoods. I'm really interested, though, to know about how you got interested in the work that you do. What was the genesis, if you like, or the experience that made you decide that quite apart from having a full-time job, you decided that you wanted to put your discretionary time towards the work that you do with Better Men? Uh, that's a really good question. So as from, from how I got into the work, and um, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit, um, just to kind of give you a bit of an intro on, on who I am and um, my backdrop a little bit. Um, I, Anthea, I would say I went through life and life kind of directed me into this work that I'm in. Um, I went through, you know, grew up in Western, Western, um, West Brunswick and the inner city suburbs of Melbourne. And um, I would say I was very disconnected from um you know, many many of the different community pillars that exist and um i found myself in a, in a bit of a bit of um a downward sp- uh, spiral and i got, got myself into a little bit of trouble um in my teen years that that um that i required support myself and and it was through the form of community services and um you know various community assets that that supported my journey in rehabilitation and um and and kind of come up out of out of a dark patch in my my teen years which consisted of a youth justice um encounter as well where where i encountered the youth justice yj system here in victoria so to 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 shorten it a little bit it was those experiences those dark times that kind of opened the door for services and and good people and good service providers and um you know a community-based response that 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 opened me to a world of um community service and and the, and and the power of giving and the power to inspire young people and i myself i consider myself a byproduct of that um when done well um and that's i haven't looked back since you know we started with with my days at the ymca which was one of my first interactions with the community service and um and it's just been a passion of mine and i've pursued it professionally and now dedicated my career to supporting young people not to have to go down a path of um you know a similar type of path which which may be a little bit more traumatic and a little bit more um a, a steep learning curve you know and um, that's 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 what i do it, it does seem though that a lot of this comes naturally to you because you have this ability to relate to other young people and what their needs are you, you mentioned the importance of community services. Do you think that young people, well, one, are there enough community services, but do you think communi- um, young people actually know how to reach out to those community services? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think that's part of the work that, 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 that needs to be done and the conversation that needs to be had. is, I Look, I, my personal take on, on services is that um, we need to reimagine, you know, how we kind of how we're operating because there is a bit of a disconnect when it comes. Especially, I'll talk from an African Australian perspective because I am an African Australian advocate and I work closely with African Australian communities. And um, and I am myself an African Australian, so I can speak very intimately about this as well. Is is yeah, a lot of the services are, and you know, they don't work 
hard enough to reach those that are not convenient to reach, you know, and that's part of the problem, you know, and um, and it's been a gap. And yeah, to be to be blunt, be fair as well. It's I think um, it's more difficult to go out of your way and build a relationship and, and extend an arm for communities that you don't have that connection with, you know, and it does take a little bit more more coverage from a service perspective and a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more work. Let's, yeah. let's just put it yeah. is to go, to go and, and, and build those relationships. And, and I think that's, it's not on the young people to, 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 to find services, you know, and I think it's, it's the services to make themselves available and, um, to make themselves known or where they are, where they are and where they're operating and for young people to engage with the services when they need, when they when they choose to do so, and if they need to do so, if to, if they do need to engage with any of these services, so um, it's a conversation that I think that services need to lead, and I think um, the community sector kind of we need to really imagine what what that looks like a little bit, because yeah, there is a disconnect in in um, young people accessing services, yes. especially African Australian young people. Ma, yeah. but it, it strikes me that you know during COVID, it it became mm. abundantly aware to government that they needed to be able to talk to the community via community organisations, volunteer or otherwise, that could help to get the information about COVID and vaccines right down to the individual level. One of the the concerns that I I guess generally we have is that those those, um, connections, those networks that were built up are not being used now for a variety of other um, opportunities that uh, really do need, as you said, the community to be able to connect through to the individual so that the individual doesn't have to go out looking for it, that they know what services are available. Do you think there is um, a stepping back by government that you were there when we needed you, but right now we're okay, we're just doing our thing? Do you think there is any degree of that stepping back of from those networks? Well, look, I won't speak for the government yet, but, but what I will do, what I'll say is that, look, I think there was a lot of lessons to be learned from the COVID responses, and the, and I think that the um, the lessons that we did learn was the community's ability to respond um, and to lead responses that are serving them, you know, and we saw that in the Tower Towers lockdown and um, in, the, in the Flemington region, North Melbourne region, there and we all know that story very well and, and the power of those responses and we saw it across the state, whether it's material aid. I was part of a material aid initiative here in Greater Dandenong where I reside and, and I used to used to work in, in the Greater Dandenong community and and you see the power of community and their ability to respond because it was, you know, council uh, partnering with communities to deliver, mm-hmm. you know, tons of food or material aid and uh, essential items during a time of need. What, what what I will say is that look there is there, there's lessons that that are quite clear you know and they'll they'll quite quite visible and that's a the community's capacity to to lead a response and to support their communities um, and their ability to partner effectively with government as well so we know we know that that is so looking at it on from that premise I would say there is greater opportunity and I'm a big advocate of this as well. And um, those that know me well will know that I've always bang on about community-led responses, and yeah. um, and and we've always kind of just been a middle, uh, you know. Uh, there's been some additional personal or process that's been put in front of community. So 
um, it, we, we could never, you know, partner directly with with um, certain um, larger entities. And um, but I think that's shifting. I think there's been a change. I think we have good community operators. I think we've got great leadership in in uh, and growing. I should say growing leadership in African Australian communities as well. Mm-hmm. So um, there needs to be more of that. You know, I think we need to continue that and build on it because that's where the solutions are going to come from. Yeah. Now, one word that gets bandied about a great deal is this term belonging. And, uh, and mm-hmm. certainly the, the sense that this, if you cultivate a sense of belonging, uh, that that will help to build social cohesion, will help to build this um, uh, sense of, um, of acceptance within communities. Is that the case? Do you think that the term belonging is is appropriately used or overused potentially look yeah it has been it's, it's become a buzzword hasn't it Anthea? Mm. look it's 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 kind of something that's um a bit, it become a bit airy-fairy a little bit and it's it's how it's used and um it, it's kind of lost it's it's um, significance in, especially in the community sector, it's used a lot as well. Yeah. Um, for for me, look, my understanding, and, and it's a, it's it's something that informs my practice. So I'll start off by that. You know, as a practitioner in this space and as a professional, um, that's something we 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 aspire aspire is to connect young people to the communities which they belong. You know, and 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 that they're a part of, and other to create to create a, a greater sense of belonging. To understand sense of belonging, we got to look at what are the tenets of it. You know, let's break it down. You know, and, and let's look at what are the components within that that that, that, that need to be that need to be considered. You know, it's things like you know psychological safety. It's things like acceptance. It's things um, you know empathy, people's ability to connect as well with experiences of individuals that don't look like them or don't share um, you know the same path mm-hmm. of life as them. It's it's about connection as well. You know, we live in it. We live in a day and age where the digital age, and we'll get into this conversation a little bit later. In in sense of belonging, that young people are more connected than ever. But they, but you know, we got depression rates, rates of depression at all time high. We got, you know, rates of, of anxiety and, and loneliness as well among young people that are that are soaring as well. So, it's you can be connected and. and we, we, that's where even the digital connection and the, what, what's the quality of that connection. You know, I, I think that's such an important how, point, absolutely, yeah. because belonging, um, we tend to use it, and certainly, as you say, within community services, we tend to use it in a very positive frame. Uh, but in actual fact, people can gravitate to all sorts of places to get a sense of belonging, and not all of them are necessarily the most positive places for them in the long term. So I, I, I think it's really important, as you've done, to break it down into what are those components. Um, but young people have their own set of dynamics. They're finding their own way in the world. They're trying to figure out their identity and, and where they actually want to spend their time. Um, so are you, what, are you seeing any changes in young people at the moment that has an impact on your ability to help them navigate those aspects of belonging? Oh yeah, I'd say definitely. I think post-COVID, what you're seeing is, you know, we were put, you know, taken. It took a few steps backwards in 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 the connection, in the connections and and our our um, young people's engagement in um, community, wider community, you know. And 
I think COVID's impacted that. We're seeing, look, a reconnection and, and, and those relationships uh, are um, advancing, you know, to, to mm-hmm. at, at a rate. But social media, like I, I'd say the biggest thing is the digital connections and what, what are the implications of the digital connections versus the quality in-person connection. Because when we grew up in theatre as well, it, we didn't have this, I'd start off by pressures of social media. We didn't have the pressure, pressures of the digital world. So we got this evolving world where everything is at the fingertips of young people and, 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 and the connections and, and the gaming, you know, e-gaming. Everything is, it's all happening behind through a screen, the mm-hmm. interactions. And, and it's affecting, I think, um, the, the connections that they make outside of that world, which is the, the screen world, I'll call it, or the digital world. So that's one thing that 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 I that I believe is is affecting the quality of those relationships that young people are forming. But also, I would say, it's one of the biggest things that I'm noticing as well is that, especially from an African Australian perspective, is um, there isn't a willingness when you talk about connection um, to put yourself in environments that don't look that don't have people that look like you or don't mm. have people that, um, you know, that, that you, you feel. You can um, relate to. Yeah. Share, yeah. The share, mm-hmm. share those experiences or, or, or relatable to you. So a, a good example of that is, you know, we look at, I believe local governments play a significant role in the landscape of connection in, in neighborhood and communities. You know, I think that's one of the biggest pillars and I've got a local government background and working across several local government areas. I, I believe the power of local government in establishing meaningful connections for young people and the role of um, establishing pathways and in, in increasing youth participation, local government is at the forefront of that work yeah. alongside the NGOs and, and, and whatnot. And that, that that's a gap that I've, I've, I've identified is um, the lack of you know diversity within local government areas, especially those that... I believe that the local government areas should reflect the, the yeah. communities that they serve. So, you know, and, um, Mohammed, I'm, I'm really interested in, um, well, co-design, if you like, and the, this sense yeah. of, of ensuring that young people have a voice in whatever the programming is that's designed or that they have a way of being able to say, stop doing that and do more of this type, type of conversation. But in many respects, even at the local government level, there might be a, a small handful of individuals who are prepared to um, stand up and participate in, in committees and things and share their thoughts. And But it mean, but as a result, a large number of actual young people aren't participating. They're, they're defaulting, if you like, to those individuals that choose to sit on committees. And, and at the same time, for other organisations, whether they're NGOs or government, they they want to send out surveys, they want to go and, and find more information. But um, in, in a, um, as I, it was explained to me the other day, where you have a particularly um, a preference for oral tradition, the idea of completing a survey is just anathema. So um, I'm curious about how do we ensure that there is the broadest possible voice of African Australians coming up, whether it's to local government or to NGOs or to others. Well, that's a really that's a really good question, and it's my response would say I'll, I'll start off by saying it's 
I believe that young people should have a voice across all matters that 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 concern them. Yeah, and our communities, it's about valuing the voices and contributions and seeing it as a strength. And yeah, you know, and then seeing the strengths, um, the contributions from African Australians and young people in general. Um, and recognizing they do have something to contribute into 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 the, into the conversation and uh, the communities. I believe when you look at community assets, you know, um, the same way we look at you know the African Australians in a sporting lens, in the say sporting clubs as a community asset, for instance, and we look at it through the lens of the contribution within that realm. I think it's accepted. You know, it's accepted that they've got you know skill sets and and um, you know they can add value to the common goal, the shared goal. But it's, it's about bringing that into other areas, whether it is on committees, leadership committees, whether it is part of a broader conversation, like, you know, um, that's, that's extends beyond just the physical abilities, you know, and um, it's about recognising that, hey, they, they, they do have something to contribute to the conversation and they, uh, they can provide value in this space. And then it's about, okay, now that once we recognise, okay, they, they do have that, the, the capacity to, to contribute, how are we going to engage them? Is mm-hmm. the big question. Absolutely, and that's, the, that's huge. And I'll call that I'll call that the million dollar question. <laughs> and I've worked in FDR is in in youth participation, increasing youth participation across the local government areas that I've served. So it's about how do we engage these communities and yeah. how do we engage? Um, I'll say the harder to reach, you know, and because traditionally these environments weren't set up for us. Let's be let's be honest, and um, it wasn't designed by us, and it wasn't designed for us, you know, and um, it, when we accept that and we recognize that it's not a, you know, it's a, not a shot at anybody or any system. It's more, okay, how do we make these environments mm-hmm. more suitable for the people that we're trying to attract, yeah. you know, and the people that we know we should be engaging because that's the communities that we're serving and that's what our community looks like. So we should look like that. So I keep banging on about representation because I think that's a step one. You know, if you want to get people in through the door, they need to see people that look like them, you know, and, and yeah. that, that, that's an indicator of, you know, safety, you know, that these guys value the contributions of our people because they're there, they're, 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 you can see them, it's visible, why not? But even beyond that, it's like um, going out, like I touched on earlier, going out doing the work, they're harder to reach. So it's going to take a little bit more effort to establish those relationships. It's going to take a little bit more effort to, buy that community truck it's it's got to be a two-way conversation here and yeah. it's got to be um very similar to co-design anytime we've initiated in any co-design process it's not about us trying to you know squeeze resources and you know what we need out of out of the other party it's a co-collaboration you know it's a it's a collaborative effort where two parties are coming together bringing yeah. their their strengths to the table and making it mutually beneficial so how do we make it beneficial for our young people, young Afri- African Australians, to enter youth services, you know, community facility um, at the local government area? Mm-hmm. You know, how to to feel comfortable enough to apply for internship um, within 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 that organisation? So that's it's about that's the conversation that that we need to be having is are we are we doing enough and are we really trying to reach those that we say that we should be serving that we are trying to serve? Um, because the committees that I've run in the past and whatnot, it's look, it tends to draw similar faces, you know, the same type of people attracted to these positions, you know, and, um, it's not that our young African Australian students or young people aren't 
capable of participating in these opportunities, but um, it's either that the, 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 the mode in which you're communicating isn't reaching, like mm-hmm. you said, it's not suitable, whether it's, you know, you're sending out a to residents and mail, you know, how many of these homes are going to open or whether it's an email to a database that doesn't even include, is a, you know, any have any representation anyway because you haven't previously engaged the community. So yeah. it's that redundant. And you've got to look at the, how are we communicating or how are we sharing our opportunities? And then on top of that, how are we going the extra mile? How are we going to have a tailored strategy called this cohort to make sure that we that we have a separate strategy away from the mainstream one and it's not a tick box kind of yeah. strategy. You're actually assertive and, and very assertive with your promotions um, and you're very intentional that, that, that you want to build this trust and it's a commitment that, that you're making that you're yeah. going to see through. Yeah. Um, when you spend time with young people and talk to them about mm. their lives in Australia, um, many of which have been born in Australia, what, what are some of the things that they say to you about what their experience is like, both positive and negative? What are the things that they they would put into those two buckets? Oh, look, we'll start with get the elephant out of the room a little bit, <laughs> I reckon. I reckon it's look, the stories that we hear, the narratives we hear in the media, you know, Anthea, is yeah. that um, it, it impacts young people. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see the narratives that are pushed about African Australians, for instance, and I'm um, again, I'm making it African-Australian-centric conversation oh, because you know, that's kind that's of... That's what it should that's, be. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of... Um, that. And I, I sit on the Victorian African Communities Committee as well and, and represent, you know, the experiences of African-Australians and, and I've been engaged with this conversation, so it's at the tip of my tongue at the moment mm-hmm. as well. So it's with the experiences of African-Australians, it's first of all, when we talk about sense of belonging, if young people don't... The point I touched on, the tenets of sense of belonging, psychological um, safety, if the stories that they're hearing is impacting their psychological safety, you know, and, and, and uh, compromising who they are, because sense of belonging is a fundamental, mm-hmm. it's an essential, it's a fundamental right. It's, it, it's not a nice to have, it's a need to have. It's got health implications if you don't belong, you know, yeah. and, and once you recognize that, um, and you see it through the lens. What young people are saying is that these narrative narratives that are being pushed is impacting who we are and how we feel about ourselves. Well, so affects if it's, their, it's something. It affects their physical yeah, safety as sure. well. For, for sure, and their physical safety as well. So it's 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 so you look at it from that component. It's it's very difficult for for them to connect with the Australian experience, you know. And yeah. um, I'm not saying that they don't they don't feel Australian, but it's they feel as if they're getting pushed away. So it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? So yeah. it's a it, it's a it's a conversation that needs to be had, and uh, we need to do better at, at how how we portray ourselves um, and how we work to counter that narrative. Yeah. You know, and I think it's about taking back our narrative. And you see, you're seeing it now in the in community, and uh, there's a lot of youth led, a lot of community led responses, and and um, they. I think the community is is at a, at a really nice nice point in in reestablishing and retelling um, our stories from mm-hmm. from our perspectives as well. So it's yeah. a double, so it's a negative that kind of led to a positive as well. <laughs> it's empowered. I think it's empowered the communities to to um, have, have to you be heard, the holder holder of the pens. 
Have you heard comments from young people that have surprised you, that have been more on the positive side of things that you weren't expecting? Uh, from the from a positive lens, yeah, young people, uh, look, there, there's a great opportunity. You know, it's, there's um, what they're seeing is more role models than ever in the community. You know, they've got access to um, a variety of, of uh, visible leaders, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's shifting. There's been a shift in, 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 in that. So, um, when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of that, you know, yeah. uh, and yeah, I grew up in a single parent home and not to make it about me, but it's when, when there's an absence of a, of a male figure or father figure or, 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 or a male, um, leader or whatever it is, you know what I mean? The figure, however you want to phrase it, it leaves a you know a hole in a young person, and to navigate, you know, another another bit of especially young men in, in how to, uh, and also young women and young girls as well. But it's um, it's challenging, you know, yeah. and, and it's um, we we're, we're our culture as well. Unfortunately, it's at higher. So I'm talking about from East African backgrounds, um, you know. It's more prevalent as well to to that fathers are either not as engaged as they need to be or or are, are not present. So, if you look at it from that perspective, the importance of having role models and people people to connect with to kind of fill that gap and fill that hole is becomes very very important and, and essential. And I guess having you know, and, having those role models in local communities in in that physical presence is also really important because, as you say, we want to get people away from uh, connecting in via their screens uh, for 100% of what they're doing and spend more time okay. physically in the local area but with role models that are really helping them figure out how to deal with all the issues that they're, they're confronting. So it's a, it's a really important component, I think. Too, too right. And, and that's, the, that's the work. You know, and, and it's not about token hires. It's not about <laughs> you know, it's not about uh, ticking a box. Hey, I've yeah. got I've got both. So I've, I've, I'm I'm done, and, and half my job is done. And um, it's also about now now that you have diversity within your organisation, how are you going to nurture that 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 asset? Yeah. How are you going to make make sure that 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 your spaces that 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 you know that, that these assets and, and, and communities I have, have um, connected with is supporting their journey. It's about mm-hmm. retention and, and how you're going to make it a safe space, a culturally safe space, um, and, and how you're going to identify what are the strengths and contributions or skill sets that um, this person comes with that yeah. I can leverage and support and hone in and put them in position to win, I'd say. Absolutely. Is, is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. set them up so for it's success. Half the I've got two final questions. One is, mm-hmm. what advice would you give for a young African-Australian's neighbour? Get to know them, you know, get to know their story, their, their aspirations and um, find a way that you can share your skills, knowledge, wisdom and impart that knowledge onto onto that, onto that mm-hmm. onto them and, and, and if they're willing to take it in and soak it in. And, um, and maybe listen, like, to, very, listen to them impart knowledge to you and, as well and and vice versa that is for sure every conversation is a two-way conversation and and uh and it's about you know you can learn and benefit just as much if not more from the experiences of young people 
and through the lens of young people and their yeah. perspectives, you know. And it, it all starts um, with a hello. And, yeah. it, and, and, um, and an openness, mm-hmm. you know, open hearts and open minds. You know, that's what, that's what I often say, you know, and um, it's about entering every encounter with that and not just in your neighbor as well. I'm talking about the mm-hmm. shop that you go Absolutely. to. Yeah, the super supermarkets and when you're at the sporting club as well. Um, if your your children are playing sports and, and engage get engaged with other you know other other, other children as well and um, yeah just initiate a conversation because that's what it is young people want that conversation they're open for that conversation and um, and and they're willing to step up and lead conversations as well so yeah yeah the the final question is I believe you had an incredibly successful multicultural youth leadership conference recently. What made it successful yeah. for you? Yeah, that, okay, yeah, a lot of that was around challenging um, the narratives, you know, and, and um, first of all, that was in partnership with Endeavour Youth Australia who, who was leading that conference as well. And it was a great partnership that um, and great work that, that, that they co-designed uh, alongside myself. But for, for us, what it was, it, it was exactly what we spoke about in this conversation. You know, it's, it was about taking back being the holders of our pen and, and connecting students from multicultural backgrounds to the array of professionals that are thriving in across sectors, so many different sectors, you know, and the, and, um, the young people were taken aback and, and the feedback and the evaluation was, was just, it was so positive and, and overwhelmingly um, it, it was well received. Yeah. But it was hard to believe that they hadn't happened before. <laughs> that was probably, like, yeah. you know, you know. Oh, absolutely. But that, that's one of the things mm. I think people forget is how rapidly different communities are evolving and taking control mm. of how they want their lives and their stories to actually be communicated more broadly. So um, congratulations on that and and to the others that were involved. That's fantastic. But I do want to thank you very much for spending this time with us today. It's uh, It's been a terrific conversation and a delightful way of reminding us how important both the smile is but also um, a sense of actually recognising what everybody's got to contribute to their own local communities. So thank you very much, Mohammed. No, no, thank you. This is an important conversation and we could, we could probably be here for a couple more hours, <laughs> but but I'll, I'm going to I'll leave you guys to it. But uh, thanks for having me, you know, first and foremost, and, and for pushing a conversation um, that's super close to my heart. And um, and I know that the Scanlon Foundation do an incredible bit for their communities as well. And we recognise that we see it, Anthea. So <laughs> um, continue continue to support and, and, and give back to initiatives that, that are, are contributing will. immensely. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, okay. Mohammed. Well, Faisal, they were two terrific guests. Bronwyn came from a really different perspective, very much about um, that sort of local government infrastructure perspective, but she had the insights because of her experience with Volunteering Victoria. And then Mohammed is all about the ground up. It's about talking to young people mm-hmm. to figure out what they actually need within those communities. So th- this ability for both of those things to be informed by each other is a really challenging area. And it was interesting to hear how both of them uh, connected local government together when Bronwyn mentioned the ability of local government to not just open up land, et cetera, but also have that responsibility of making some of these spaces, like places where people can come and 
like do things. Mm-hmm. I think uh, most, yeah, was actually speaking a little bit about that as well. So it was, it was really interesting to hear the local government message come really strongly <laughs> through. Absolutely. And it is really interesting that that short-term immediate need mm. versus planning long-term, you know, almost decades out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, probably both of them, uh, maybe uh, maybe particularly Bronwyn spoke about that need for us to think more strategically about the places where people are coming to live because they're the future of Australia. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, one million folks that she mentioned, I'm not sure what that figure was, but um, <laughs> I think she did allude to the fact that that is the next generation of Australians. So, a- absolutely. Yeah. And then Mo comes in talking yeah. about, well, if you're going to have young people living in these areas, yeah. which is what we want, yeah. you really need to make sure that you make sh- that that they have that sense of, being a part of that local community and mm-hmm. not sitting in their rooms necessarily just connecting with people online. Yeah. They actually have to be out physically doing stuff in the community. Do you remember, Anthea, being connected to your local council when uh, you were younger? No, I have yeah. no, uh, no, <laughs> no thinking. But in actual fact, the services, though, yeah. I think they, they were things, you know, you just walk along the road that you expect it to be, uh, that the grass to be mowed that yeah. that's the whole sense of um that but and and safety yeah those things i think are all the result of the local councils but yeah. as a young person yeah the local council's not necessarily something that you connect with but the ymca was certainly something that i did that mohammed mentioned right yeah. at the very start yeah that was very much a part of my childhood yeah well growing up i always uh didn't have a association with Wyndham as an as a name that i found that at later yeah but i always had association with hoppers crossing uh-uh. so <laughs> and we actually had a lot of people that the way that they articulated their belonging was like, you know, they'd make music and their postcode <laughs> of our area <laughs> was their names for their, like, you know, music, yeah. musician, artist, or et cetera. Yeah. So um, it was really interesting. People identified with the postcode, but perhaps not with the national story, which I think we probably kind of didn't tease out here, but it does probably yeah. lend to a future conversation about why people feel really associated with something as much as a number. Absolutely. But not with the whole uh, broader society. Yeah. Well, then the coming up uh, episodes deal yeah. with some really macro, big picture type national issues. So yeah. it is going to be interesting to see what those, uh, those guests have to say about those topics. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Macrijorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au.